Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from you, our listeners on social media. We can be found on Twitter at Providence and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our guest today, Dr. Vanneke. Well, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Vanneke. Could you start with an easy one and just tell us a little bit about your role at the Institute for Human Caring and what brought you to palliative care? Thank you, Mary, for the invitation. I'm the Associate Medical Director of the Institute for Human Caring and the Medical Director for the Palliative Practice Group, which has um, some responsibilities to support palliative care throughout the entire Providence Health System. And so we have 51 hospitals and very many clinics, and a group of us in the palliative practice group uh, play a role in supporting the palliative care programs throughout all of the, the hospitals and clinics in Providence. Well, and palliative care, a lot of people equate to hospice care, and it's not necessarily. It's 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 more about kind of chronic conditions and end-of-life care, but a lot of that is really reflective in how we communicate with people and how we, we treat them in those kind of those tough times. Um, and so the topic today is really about the use of telehealth as it relates to palliative care. And so I wanted to start with kind of explaining to me a little bit about how you can create a, a sense of physical contact or intimacy or a really deep connection with someone when you are using technology to have those conversations? We've been working to develop telehealth within palliative care for a couple of years, but the uh, progress we've made since March 1st has been dramatic because of COVID-19. Um, with restrictions on family members being able to visit their seriously ill loved ones in the hospital, with the restrictions on people coming into clinics, we've been doing everything from family meetings to clinic visits by video and telephone encounters. Early on, I was a little skeptical. Could we maintain a high level of intimacy? Because uh, in palliative care, you're having conversations that really cut to the core of you know, what, what a person's goals are in medical treatment. You know, are they hoping to do everything possible to prolong life? Are they hoping to pursue improved quality of life? Uh, what, what are their preferences? And so uh, these conversations really are deeply personal. I've been really impressed with how well people, including uh, patients and family members, but also caregivers, you know, physicians, other members of the healthcare team have adapted to these virtual encounters. I've had telephone encounters with people I've never met that we got into deeply personal discussions in a 20-minute phone conversation and really accomplished a lot of important uh, discussion and decision-making in the course of that. Uh, for family members, when their loved one is in the hospital, the use of iPads and, and platforms such as Zoom or FaceTime ha have been tremendous. I, I've had numerous visits from a patient's bedside with family members in other states where they can now see their mother, their father, their brother, their sister on the video screen where they are. We use iPads to do this. And um, it, it's very different than hearing me sit out at a desk describing what's going on to them when they can actually have a conversation with their loved one and see them in, in real time. And then I'll often be off screen um, facilitating the conversation. But really the engagement in that setting is between the patient and their family member. So it, it's been quite an interesting experience to go from thinking about this and talking about it 
to suddenly in the time of COVID rapidly ramping up to doing it and, and having to, to adjust uh, in real time without uh, the ability to do a lot of structured planning necessarily along the way. And now we're doing the planning so that as we move beyond COVID, we can retain a lot of the benefits of virtual interaction uh, without necessarily having the urgency because of family visitation restrictions in the hospitals and things like that. Well, you, you mentioned the hospitals, but uh, a lot of the palliative care that's done is often done in the homes, right, of those patients. And so do you see or foresee, I guess I should say, the fact that telehealth may be something that we use more after COVID-19 than we did before? Because home visits can be kind of hard and challenging when you think you think about the time commitment, that sort of thing. Absolutely. There's a phrase with home care, windshield time. And if you have a professional who spends a lot of time driving and where I practice in Southwest Washington, there are times that it's an hour drive out to a patient's house. And if you can have a nurse go out to the house set up an iPad and then have the physician, the social worker, the chaplain uh, beam in, so to speak, and interact that way, rather than having independent windshield time for all of those professionals, you may have it for just one, and yet be able to accomplish the same level of important interaction by um, using the, the technologies. So I, I think there are aspects of telehealth that we're not going to look back on. We, we had to make do because of COVID-19, and we've rapidly ramped up these technologies. And I think we're seeing enough benefits in how they work, even independent of COVID-19, that many of these practices will remain after um, you know, the lockdowns are, are discontinued. You know what I think is fascinating about the Institute for Human Caring is that you're using doctors who specialize in technology to make these advancements and changes, whereas I think a lot of companies are just figuring out the technology of using Teams or Skype or Zoom. You actually have clinical uh, experts, I guess, working on that technology. What do you see kind of changing for you guys in the next 30, 60, 90 days maybe? Well, I think that we will be trying to provide more and more telehealth resources in the field of palliative care. Uh, we have a number of like critical access hospitals in Providence throughout our seven states. Uh, outside of Providence, there are many rural hospitals and small communities that are having difficulty uh, getting access to sp uh, specialized palliative care just because they don't have the resources in their community. And so utilizing um, our clinical experts, but also our informatics experts. We have Matt Gonzalez at the Institute for Human Caring, our chief medical informatics officer. So this is a gentleman who uh, is a, co a software engineer and a physician and and a deeply compassionate human being and so being able to integrate all of that as we develop the technologies really will take the technology and the aspects of caring for whole people you know not just their biological care but the spiritual um, emotional social aspects of their care family aspects of their care can blend it all in a way that I think uh, will really meet the needs of the people we serve better than simply accomplishing a checkoff list from a clinical perspective. Yeah, every time we talk about Dr. Matt, I say he's such a slacker. I mean, what has he really accomplished, right? <laughs> I know. Well, he, I think it's, he must it's have really been interesting because he's doing at least three people's work. Oh, it's, he's amazing. And he does it so graciously and gracefully. Yes. It's, it's, yes. it's yeah, almost disheartening for the rest of us. But um, when when you think about telemedicine, I think, well, and especially during times of COVID, right, people are afraid to leave their homes. We hear so many cases right now of people who have delayed care for heart attacks, strokes, 
cancer diagnosis because they're afraid to leave their home because they're afraid to either contract COVID or they're afraid that the hospitals are so busy that they're going to take away from that. What do you say to those people? Like, is this kind of your ability to really connect with those patients who need the care but are afraid to leave home right now? First of all, I, I look at what is the what, what care is needed and can that be delivered virtually? I was on a call with a friend last night who's an anesthesiologist and we agreed that his work can't be done on Zoom. Uh, he has to be there in person. On the other hand, the cognitive specialties, you know, I think of uh, mental health, I uh, think of palliative care, think of a lot of what primary care does can be delivered virtually. And a phrase I often use for patients and families is instead of you coming in for the care, we're going to bring the care to you at your home. And that applies for home health, hospice, other home-based resources. And uh, many patients and families, that's what they would prefer. Sometimes, especially if they're uh, frail and getting out is a challenge, um, they may like to get out periodically just to get away from the house. Others um, are a little bit reluctant to allow a person into their home. So sometimes the virtual encounter are nice ways to sort of find the, the, the sweet spot in between all of those concerns. Um, but for the majority of patients, if they know that they can get what they need and the quality won't be diminished and they don't have to drive in, sit in a waiting room, you know, get escorted back to the exam room, sit and wait in the exam room for the provider, do all the checkout work. If they can do everything from home instead of all that, many people prefer it. Well, I know I do. Uh, the thought of getting in traffic and going and being exposed to like, generally, if I go to my primary care physician, there's six like children in the waiting room, with some sort of a cold. So um, you know, there are a lot of people, though, who say that telemedicine, telehealth, telepsych is not the same, right? Because I can't touch you. I can't see you. You can't assess me that way. You're only seeing what you see on the screen. What's your kind of response to that? I think, again, it depends on the need. Um, if you're going in for an appointment that really requires a physical exam, let's say you've got a breast mass in a, in a woman, um, you know, you're not going to be able to accomplish that as effectively virtually. But if we're talking about managing your diabetes, if there's a way I can um, get the lab results I need in another way, have somebody come out to the house, um, many times the hu humanistic aspect of the interaction is accomplished quite well virtually. It's going to depend on a person's level of comfort, but I find many of the patients I talk with, they've already been Skyping with their grandchildren. You know, they've been doing FaceTime with their brother and sister in another state. And so um, there are people for whom the technology is new and unfamiliar and uncomfortable, uh, but less so than I think many people would expect. And the, as the advantage of the uh, video aspect is you do get a lot of nonverbal communication. I find that facial expressions, body language come through quite well on many of the video platforms. It's a little more challenging with telephone communication. Um, if I'm on the phone with somebody and there's a long period of silence, I can't read their face to see are they processing or are they simply waiting for me to respond? Whereas with a video encounter, I can look and see they're clearly processing, so I need to stay quiet and give them the time to do that versus if they have an expectant, well, doctor, what are you going to say look on their face, then I probably need to speak up sooner. What are kind of the, the biggest struggles that you're having? I assume there's got to be some technology challenges. I assume today I've been experiencing bandwidth issues, right? What are kind of the, the biggest struggles that you're seeing? Probably the most common one I hear is just the uh, people don't have wh whichever 
uh, virtual platform available to them readily. So they're going to have to go to their app store and download it and do some things like that. And uh, some people, that's no big deal. But for other people, that is kind of a big deal. Uh, often they'll say, well, I'll talk to my daughter. She's really good at that sort of thing. Or I'll, I'll have my grandson help me. And so many family members are able to help. But just getting the technology into the home and, and onto their device can sometimes be a challenge. And then I do a lot of work with rural uh, families where maybe their bandwidth is uh, limited. They have a really slow Wi-Fi or um, Internet connection. Some of them don't even have good cell connection where they live. And so making sure that uh, people have access to those things is going to be important. I find it's probably more the technological aspects that are limits than, than anything else. And then uh, finally, comfort zone. I do find in, in my clinic population, I'm probably about two to one telephone over video by patient preference. They're familiar with phones. They do it all the time. It's easy for them to talk by telephone. It's a little more of a lift to uh, get set up to do a video encounter. And so I'm still doing more telephone encounters and video encounters with my clinic population. Well, that's really interesting. I imagine there's some aspects that video can be easier for you. I mean, obviously you talked about reading facial expressions, but even humor. I think, I know I had a, a visit with one of my doctors fairly recently and he always makes jokes and it was over the phone. And there was a moment where I wasn't sure if he was kidding or not. And I think if I could see him face to face, I would have known that. But you, you have mentioned the family a few times and especially like having my granddaughter or my daughter help me, but talk to me a little bit about the role of family when it comes to palliative care, because I feel like they are part of the process, yes? Absolutely. We often talk that the patient and their family are the unit of care, not just the patient him or herself. Now, patients have the right to choose whether or not they're completely independent or they want their family brought in. And we ask, you know, how, how much would you like your family involved and who else would you like me to share information with? Who would you not want me to share information with? So those are usually upfront um, questions. And then that helps us establish the individual's preference for involvement of the family. But on inpatient palliative care, we're often consulted on uh, patients who have very limited cognitive abilities. That is, they may have dementia, they may have had a stroke, they may be on a ventilator in the ICU and they're deeply sedated. So we spend a lot of time working with family members as surrogate decision makers. That is, when the patient's no longer enabled to make their own decisions, who do we turn to to make those decisions? And each state has its own uh, regulatory framework for how that's processed automatically. People can designate somebody as the so-called durable power of attorney for health care. And, and in those situations, we spend a lot of time with family. I've been doing a fair number of family meetings with my hospitalized patients, uh, mostly when the patient is incapacitated and can't speak for him or herself. And uh, we'll have family members from multiple states on a call together, a video conference together uh, to review their clinical situation, uh, to discern what the patient's preferences would be if they could speak for themselves, to discern what the family members who are their spokespeople would, would choose. And again, getting everybody together like that helps assure that people are on the same page. At the end of the day, they want to know that they have done the right thing as a loving family member to provide the best care possible for the person in the hospital. And so getting people together like that 
uh, gives them the opportunity to process things and to assure that by the end of the encounter, everybody feels like they're on the same page and then they, they're less likely to have regrets or second thoughts or, or divisiveness amongst the family members if they've had that opportunity. I actually listened to a, a podcast last week and it was a family who talked about the fact that five of them had gotten on a call from five different states or four different states to talk about the care for their mother at the end of life. And it was the first time that they had all communicated with each other at the same time for over five years and it brought the family together. So even though they lost their mom, that Zoom call experience that they had actually brought the family together. And I thought, what a beautiful use of technology. I had a very similar experience last week with uh, four family members, uh, again, multiple states, but uh, they hadn't been in a lot of communication. I don't think they'd gone quite as long as what you described, but in particular, the patient herself lived with one of the daughters and uh, the other family members really hadn't been involved at all in her uh, medical care and decision making. And so this was not only important for the entire group to feel like they were up to speed on what's going on with mom and that the care decisions uh, fit with what everybody decided. Uh, but I could feel that process going on of what you just described. Uh, there, there was bonding taking place in the process of talking things over about mom and reflecting on mom, who she was, why she was so upset when she saw a certain type of care when her sister was really sick, how that would drive her decisions, that she said she would never want the following, that she said, this is what I would want. And by talking about that, it really pulled them all together. And it was a unifying um, experience to have that video encounter. Oh, that makes my heart happy. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break here on Talk with the Doc. And when we come back, we're actually going to take questions for our doc via social media. So we will be right back. Got me feeling like the elephant in every room I'm walking into. Yeah. We started out innocent till I got pulled right into your issue. Yeah, yeah. I'm tired of sending hugs and kisses.
back on Talk with the Doc, and I am joined by Dr. Greg Vandekeef, and we are talking about the use of technology in palliative care, and we are going to take some questions from social media. Um, the first one is going to come to us from No Way Joe on Twitter, and he said, I don't like the idea of my doctor's visit traveling on the web. How do I know my appointment won't get Zoom bombed? No, I think that's an important question. I, I talked to a doctor recently who was teaching a large group of medical students when their uh, course got Zoom bombed. Um, one of the things we do when we set up our visits is we have a waiting room and I have to allow people in. And so that's one layer of security. Another layer of security is we often will use passwords that the patient or family member actually has to enter a password that we share with them when we're scheduling the appointment uh, so that they can get in and others can't. And so there are security measures that are being taken to help prevent that sort of privacy concern. Um, Privacy on the internet these days is always a risky business, but uh, you know we work with our IT folks and others, our information technology folks, to really make sure we set up layers of security so that that won't happen. And I, I've not yet talked to any physicians who've had um, privacy issues of that sort or Zoom bombing during patient encounters. Well, this question is interesting because you talked a little bit about the family, but it says, how do I address privacy issues if I need my family members to help speak for me, but I don't necessarily want them to know all about my medical records? That's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think in part, uh, first off, communicate that to your physician or your healthcare provider, what you do and don't want shared. Uh, because I, I always let people know you're the captain here. I, I'm here to do what you want. And if you want me to share everything, I will. And the majority of people do. But there are certainly uh, patients I've had who want certain aspects kept private. And if I know that, then it's my obligation to respect your desire for privacy. In a video setting, um, I need to be mindful about the questions I ask, or even you know, in person and telephone. I, I shouldn't ask highly personal questions that somebody might want kept private in front of family members unless I already know that it's okay for that to be discussed. And so if I have a family member present, I might be a little more general than I would be if I was just with the individual, unless I've already been told, you know, share anything you want with this person. I don't care. They can know anything. Then I'll, then I'll ask a little more personal questions. That's a good answer. Um, Roman asks, how can I tell if my doctor is paying attention? I feel like he's just typing. That's awesome. Maybe we should talk about Epic. I don't know. <laughs> Well, that's an in-person problem as well as a video problem. Mm -hmm. When we first went to the electronic record, I heard a lot of complaints for patients that their doctor paid more attention to the computer than to them. And um, some early studies indicated that physicians who were highly skilled communicators, the technology actually improved their communication. They could swing the monitor around, show them uh, graphs of their blood pressure readings over time, their blood sugar readings over time. Uh, they could uh, show x-rays and it would enhance communication. Physicians with 
lesser communication skills were the ones who got sucked into the computer and started to turn their back to the patient that they were with. So that's not just an online problem, it's a, an, an in-person problem as well. I, I think the, the key thing again is just simple stuff, eye contact, um, respecting the non-visual cues. As I mentioned earlier, if there's a long period of silence, it can mean different things. Sometimes people are really thinking, and I need to recognize that and not interrupt that thought process by jumping into the silence because I'm uncomfortable with it and starting to talk. Um, I need to give them time. On the other hand, if they're looking at me expectantly wondering you know, what I'm going to say next, maybe I shouldn't sit there awkwardly. I should speak up. And so visual Cueing like that is really important. One last thing I often do, if I do have to get into the computer, I do need to take notes during a talk, I acknowledge it. I will say something along the line of, you know, I'm sorry, but I need to get into your chart just a little bit, uh, but I am paying attention. And then um, try to spend as little time distracted by the computer, so to speak, uh, as possible. But just even acknowledging it goes a long ways. Well, I think we can learn from that in every aspect because we used to do these radio shows with call-in and it was so hard when somebody was talking and you wanted to jump in with a question or you wanted to extend it, but they couldn't see your face. So you basically had to wait for them to finish. And it was sometimes very awkward and you'd have to talk over people. So I do think the video aspect is really nice. Um, we're gonna take another question. It comes from Patty. I love this one. She said, the experience of seeing my doctor through a computer is odd. How do I make it less awkward? And I would suggest first that you come fully clothed, right? <laughs> Do you have do you have any tips? I mean, what what do you try to do? Well, a couple of things. Uh, we actually do have some uh, tip sheets that we share about simple things. Lighting. I, I often joke that you know people sitting in front of a bright window with their face completely blacked out. It's like communicating with somebody in the witness protection program. Um, so you know, simple things. <laughs> having a light so your face is properly lit. Uh, preferably mm -hmm. where it doesn't do anything weird to your colors. Uh, thinking about your background where it's not too complicated or distracting. You know, uh, sometimes people are more interested in what's what's in your background than they are in you. And so trying to simplify that. We're seeing a lot of people using virtual backgrounds and at times that's entertaining and cute. At times it can become distracting. And so being mindful again of who you're interacting with what the context is, what the level of professionalism ought to be. Um, you know, having a Star Wars background during a high-powered business meeting may not be as appropriate as having, you know, your bookshelf or your office in the background. And then just um, the familiarity, when people do it at first, it's a little bit more awkward, especially if they're uncomfortable with technology. But again, if they've been Skyping with their grandchildren or FaceTiming with family members, over time you become more and more familiar with the virtual communication as, as a means of communication. And the visual does add something to, to the audio alone. If a, a telephone call, you know, we're all comfortable and familiar with those, but how much richer is it when you can actually uh, smile at each other, see each other laughing and, and share visually as well as just by speech. I have to ask you, though, when you talk about kind of the background and the setting that you're in, it must be interesting as a doctor who sees somebody over time to then see them in their natural environment, because you can actually see maybe what kind of a housing situation they're in or living conditions that they might be in. Has there been anything that's really surprised you or that's really benefited you from having that conversation in somebody's real environment? That's a really good question, Mary. Um, I can't think of examples that jump out at me, but we, I've heard the expression multiple times, it's a little bit like a home visit. 
normally when we see patients, they have been brought into our setting and we're seeing them you know, in a way that's kind of artificial to how they live their lives. When I was a hospice doctor and went out and did home visits, seeing a person in their own home was a tremendously different experience than bringing them into the clinic or seeing them in the hospital. The video encounter has a little bit of that. And I, I know some doctors who will actually take it a step further, uh, somebody that they're worried about food insecurity. They'll say, you know, take your iPad over to your refrigerator and let me see what's in your fridge. Um, the patient is doing medication discussion. Take me, take your iPhone into your bathroom and let me see the, the medicine chest. And you can take it a step further. I haven't personally been doing that, but even just seeing a person in their home, uh, seeing the background around them, seeing their family members pop in and out, seeing their dog, um, their cat jump up on their lap, all of those things uh, do change the dynamic compared to seeing somebody in a, an exam room in a clinic. I actually heard one of our doctors talk about on a, a morning call that one of the patients they'd had a really hard time connecting with prior to COVID. They had a virtual visit and they actually saw their dog and it was the same kind of breed that they had and it really helped them connect with them and make this kind of, you know, personalization. And they said that the, the whole relationship and dynamic had changed because of that. So. I, I don't doubt it. Uh, probably my favorite one of those was uh, I had a gentleman in the hospital who had come off uh, the ventilator and decided he never wanted to go back on, but he didn't want to finalize everything until he talked to his two daughters. And so I brought the mm -hmm. iPad into his room. We had put it on a little stand so that it would uh, be uh, stationary, not you know moving because I was holding it. He got his two daughters on the um, Zoom call and each of his two daughters had their infant daughters on their laps. And he just lit up and goes, oh, I get to see two of my three grandchildren. And uh, watching that, it uh, almost felt so personal, like I needed to step out of the room and just give him time right. to there with his daughters and granddaughters. But then we facilitated a very important conversation. One of his daughters had been really leery about his decision. By the end, she totally endorsed it and supported him. So it was this blend of important medical decision making and clinical conversation with just the deeply personal aspect of this gentleman who was nearing the end of life, being able to relate to his daughters and granddaughters in a very personal way. Oh, that touches my heart so much. The work that you guys do every day is just so beautiful. I'm so grateful. Um, you know, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it's a privilege to do it. I say that about working at Providence. I was called here and every day is a privilege. I agree with yeah. you. Have you had any issues? I mean, not issues, but, you know, COVID has impacted a lot of people, especially the elderly who maybe had already been kind of at end of life. Have you had any hard time dealing with the family members' emotions of it It brought on that, that passing sooner than it should have been, maybe? So I've not cared for a lot of COVID patients where I practice. So it's been less the direct aspects of COVID as the indirect. What, mm -hmm. what I have seen most impacting the families I care for is the visitation restrictions. Sure. Even without COVID, uh, when, when their loved one is in the hospital, they're now prohibited from coming in to visit unless the patient is at the end of life and uh, on comfort care, then they allow some uh, relaxation in the visitation restrictions. And so I've been spending a lot more time on the telephone and on video encounters with family members who in the past I would probably have talked to in the patient's room or in a uh, conference room down the hall or something like that. And it's, it's been distressing to the patients, to the families, but also to the staff, uh, nursing staff in particular, uh, social work, 
chaplains all, you know, they really want to see families have the best experience possible when serious illness is, is encountered. And they know that not being able to be together with their loved ones is not the ideal care. And so being a part of something that is compromising what you normally would consider ideal care is distressing to 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 the caregivers. And so we've done a lot of work around that to try and help with uh, communication using video tools uh, so that we diminish the patient and family stress, but also diminish the stress of the people taking care of them. Well, Dr. Vandekeep, we are in our last minute here. And so I'd like to open it up to you. Is there anything you would like our, our listeners to know or any takeaways you would have for them? I think more than anything, just um, in the era of COVID, having the opportunity to talk with one another about, you know, what what are your long range hopes and goals? Um, who are the people that are most important to be a part of decision making should you get into a situation of serious illness? Um, we, we've really seen a lot of increased interest in advanced care planning, filling out advanced directives, talking about the role of various medical interventions if, if a person encounters serious illness. And having those conversations in advance are so important if the, that eventuality comes true, because when people are in the hospital and in a crisis, to bring, in, bring these questions up for the very first time is, is much more difficult than if people can say, you know, mom and I talked about this and I know what mom would want in this situation, or I, I have a good idea what mom would want in this situation. So really just, just talk and to appreciate the, the simple things, you know, family, pets, uh, home, yard. I've been hearing a lot of people say their yard and their garden have never looked better and, and trying to find the positives as we go through this very difficult time as a culture. I 100% agree with you. I feel like my connection to my family, loved ones, and even my connection to nature has never been stronger. So if, if nothing else, it did give us that. So thank you, Dr. Van Sorry. Thank you, Dr. Vandekeef, for joining us today and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to follow us on social media at Providence on Twitter and under Providence Health System on Instagram and Facebook. For the latest about coronavirus, please visit coronavirus.providence.org. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit providence.org. Thanks for listening.